part of the, the air that we breathed maybe as children. If we grew up in church, we probably heard these same texts preached week in and week out every Christmas. But because that is the case, I think it's similar to to the smell thing. I think that we can lose some of the glory of what's right in front of us because of our familiarity with it, because it's part of the air that we breathe. We've become flat out too familiar with some portions of Scripture, and we need to do everything that we can to shake the dust off and see it with fresh eyes. So that's what I'm hoping to do this morning. I'm hoping that we'll see Matthew chapter 2 with fresh eyes. Now that being said, you notice the title of this uh, message in your bulletin is The Conflict of Christmas. And one of the words you probably don't associate with Christmas that often is the word conflict. Conflict, warfare, uh, struggle, opposition. That's probably not something that you automatically associate with the Christmas season. You're probably more likely to think about things like peace on earth and goodwill toward men. You're going to think of things like love and family and acceptance and forgiveness and all of these good things that the gospel brings. But there's a problem when we only see these Christmas narratives uh, in Scripture, specifically the first couple chapters of Matthew and the first couple chapters of Luke. There's a problem when we only see those accounts in light of the peace that the gospel brings and not the conflict that it brought with the powers of darkness. From the very beginning, the gospel has always been cast in terms of conflict. What is the very first promise of the gospel? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'll put enmity. That's enemies. I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to Satan, and between her seed and your seed. In other words, Christ himself, the final seed of the woman. And he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That is a gospel of conflict. The very first message of the gospel preached to fallen sinners after the garden was one of warfare. It was, the one, of, it was one of the conflict of the true and better Adam. So from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, the gospel promise came to them in the language of a victor who would dominate the deceiver. And so as we come to our text in Matthew chapter 2, we have to keep that in mind, that that is part and parcel of the story from the very beginning. And this conflict in Matthew chapter 2 has actually reached its boiling point as the eternal Son of the Father steps into his own creation. And I want us, so, so what I want us to do is I want us to see a few different portions of this conflict in Matthew chapter 2. And I want us to see how they display the glory of the gospel and what Christ came to accomplish for us. Why he was born in Bethlehem. So let's read the text, let's read the text uh, together. These are the words of God. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, came from the the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, first, so it is written by, Matthew, by, uh, by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. These are the words of God. So the first aspect of the conflict of Christmas that I want us to see is found actually within the Magi's very search for Jesus. These wise men who came from the east uh, and they came into Jerusalem looking for Jesus. There's a few things about this that uh, highlight the conflict that Christ came to bring uh, in order to bring his people salvation. But how do these magi, in their search for Jesus, uh, prompted by this divinely appointed star, signal conflict in the coming of Christ? In, in order to see that, I think that we need to clear the stage a little bit. Well, but first and foremost, notice how Matthew words the, the, the very opening two verses of this chapter. He, he gives it a historical context. This, is, this event happened in history. It's a historical context in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's the time frame. But notice, he, it's, it's as if he's emphasizing in the days of Herod the king. In other words, there is already a king over the realm that Jesus is stepping into. And then what does verse 2 say? Or the rest of verse 1 says, Wise men came from the east into Jerusalem. So they come into Jerusalem asking this question. They're at, it's, it's almost as if they're, they're, they're asking everybody, is the picture that you get. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Do you see the conflict there? There's one who is king, and they're looking for one who is king, but they're not the same person. This one already has his kingdom established. This one has established his reign in really like an amazing way. He was a client king of the Romans, but he had accomplished massive feats of architecture. He was the one that built the temple. In fact, he was crowned king by the Romans, the only one of their underlings to ever be crowned king by the Roman emperor because of what he accomplished in his rule. This is Herod the Great. 
But this party from the east, we're not told where they're from, comes into Jerusalem and they're asking around saying, where is the king? But he's just been born. Where is the king who is born? Where is the one who's born king of the Jews? We have saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. That is an inescapable conflict right there at the very beginning of this passage. But it only intenses when you understand uh, something about who these magi were um, and what they were bringing, if you can kind of get a feel for the context here. The, the conflict only intensifies. So there's a couple of common misconceptions about these magi. A lot of times, because we sing the hymn, we three kings of Orient are, and because they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh, we get the idea that this was like three people. But if you actually read the text, nowhere in the text does it say there was only three of them. And in fact, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because their party was big enough, it was glorious enough, and it was grand enough that they caused enough commotion in Jerusalem that it gets all the way back to King Herod that they're in Jerusalem asking this question. And apparently it's a big enough deal that Herod and all Jerusalem with him is troubled by their presence there and by the question that they're there asking. You see that? So there's nothing in Scripture that says this was only like a few dudes and a camel. The account wouldn't make much sense for that to be the case. Three guys showing up with gifts to offer the newborn king uh, and wandering around Jerusalem asking this question would not have the kind of impact that apparently the arrival of these magi had. It gets all the way, it gets all the way into the highest echelons of the government and Herod himself hears about it. Herod is probably not generally concerned with the day-to-day goings-on of the people of Israel. This was an enormous deal. And secondly, not only can we see kind of some conflict by the effect that their presence has, but also they're called magi. And that's a word with a lot of historical significance. In English, we translate it wise men. But in antiquity, it often referred to the officers of king's courts who uh, were to interpret the movements of heavenly bodies and gain wisdom by the interpretation of the movements of the stars. So essentially, these people, uh, these magi, from whom we get the word magic or magician, they would uh, look at the movements of the stars and they would try to uh, practice practice whatever kind of sorcery they were going to do and then they would gain wisdom from that and then they would inform the king. They would advise the king of their land uh, about how he was to proceed in his ruling. So, what does that mean? Well, it means that even though these people probably were not kings themselves. You know, we three kings, that's, that's probably not exactly accurate. Uh, but we can say that because they're called magi and because uh, their presence has the effect that it has, 
we can say that this wasn't just a few guys showing up into Jerusalem, but this was actually noblemen of eastern kings' courts coming into Jerusalem with massive influence. That's the picture that we get. And not only that, not only are these the officers of eastern kings' courts, but they're actually flowing into Jerusalem with the riches of Gentile kingdoms with them. Like imagine, if you, if you will with me, these guys rolling into here. We don't know how many of them there were, but I like to think that there was like dozens of them. I don't know why that, uh, that comes into my mind. But they're, and they're hauling like wagons of gold and spices and all of these things with them. Can you imagine the kind of impact that would have? These were not items that regular people possessed. But here, these noblemen from Gentile courts in far-off lands are flowing into Jerusalem with the riches of the Gentiles. And if you're a Jew seeing that, all of the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are ringing in your ears. Because the Messiah is the one who will gather together both Jew and Gentile to worship the Lord together. And not only that, but turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 10 because there's an Old Testament parallel here. Actually, this isn't the first time we've seen, this isn't the first time we've seen the uh, rulers of the Gentiles streaming into Jerusalem and paying homage to the king of the Jews. 1 Kings chapter 10. This is a famous account of the queen of Sheba coming and seeing all the glory of Solomon's kingdom and hearing his wisdom. And at the end of this text, she ends up blessing Yahweh, the God of Solomon, because he's made him king. Start with me at verse, verse 1. Chapter, uh, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard, the fame, heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem, listen to this, she came to Jerusalem with very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. What did the wise men bring? They brought with them uh, gold and spices. There's a deliberate, in the providence of God, there's a deliberate allusion to the glory of Solomon's kingdom here and these Gentile rulers flowing into Jerusalem with these riches with the riches of the nations. And then pick it up, pick it up with me at, uh, at verse 4. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the att- uh, attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he had offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpass the report that I have heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be Yahweh your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold 
and a very great, great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again have, never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So there's, in the arrival of these magi, there's this allusion to the kingdom and the glory and the grandeur of Solomon. And that's not surprising because all throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah is prophesied as being a new and greater Solomon. In fact, Psalm, chapter, or Psalm number 72 talks about this Solomonic king whose dominion will be from the river to the ends of the earth and kings will bow down and lick the dust before him. So I, I just want you to, to feel the weight of what is being pictured by Matthew here. This is the, the kings of the nations or the, the, the wealth of the nations, the authority of the nations flowing into Jerusalem and being cast at the feet of Jesus. This is a fulfillment of the word of the Lord. But here's, but here's the conflict, right? Because you, do, you have this glorious king who's just born in Bethlehem. And these rulers of the earth show up in Jerusalem. And they're here to look for the king. And they're here bringing their wealth. They're bringing their riches. But they're not looking for Herod. See, do you see why Herod is troubled? Because they're bringing these things and they're asking these questions and they're saying that a divinely sent star guided them here and what Herod is hearing is his own destruction. The conflict is that they're bringing these things to a king and Herod is not that king. And then look at their question, verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. This king is just born, so once again, it's not Herod. Where is the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. But that, that phrase, even in and of itself, is something that we have to hear through Jewish ears as well. Because the people that these things would have been said to we're steeped in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24, this is the famous prophecy of Balaam, the false prophet, who Yahweh does not let speak a false word against the people of Israel. And then look at verses 17 through 19 with me. As he's uttering this prophecy, he's uttering this prophecy about the routing of God's enemies, the routing of the enemies of the people of Yahweh. And he's uttering this prophecy uh, of the, the victory of the people of God over their enemies, like Balak, the king who's trying to get him to, get him to falsely prophesy, is. He's uttering this prophecy essentially against Balak and against all of the enemies of God. And look what he says here in verse 17. He sees into the future because Yahweh reveals it to him. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star will come, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom, Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. So the Magi come from the east and they start talking about this star that they've seen. And this is one of the most famous prophecies, the most direct and clear prophecies of a singular Messiah coming forth to deliver his people. So when they say they've been led here by this star, can you imagine what's ringing in their ears? What's ringing in their ears is the ruler who will crush all of the enemies of God. The star that they saw and the star that led them to the place where Jesus was born represents the star that is the ruler that casts down every rival throne and delivers God's people through his rule. So the arrival of the Magi and the star that guided them signaled to all that Herod was dethroned. That's what Herod's thinking. That's why he's distressed. All of these signs are saying Herod's throne is done and the true king has arrived. Try as hard as you want to, Herod, but you will never dethrone this king because this is the promised king of the Jews. The king of the Jews and the king of the nations had come. This baby, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, is not just a cute story from tradition. It's not just a nice, a nice narrative that we read on Christmas Eve to our families. What this, what this, especially even this first movement in our passage is telling us is the one who was born in Jerusalem is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Magi show us practically that every knee on earth must bow to him. They show up looking for the king of the Jews and not only the king of the Jews. Notice what they say here. Look at verse 2 with me. We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. So they're not just there to see an earthly king. They're not just there to bring homage to one like Solomon. They're recognizing that something greater than Solomon is here. They're here to fall on their faces and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This text should bring to our minds the universal authority and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom every knee will bow. But it's not only the Magi and their search that reveal this conflict to us. Also Herod's reaction, Herod's plot, verses 3 through 8. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring him to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now, we don't know exactly why Jerusalem is troubled. And it seems kind of weird, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that Jerusalem was troubled at the news, at the announcement of the birth of their king is troubling to me. I mean, here they see this, this, this massive, this significant display of the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. And, and then they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is your promised king? Where is the Messiah? And Jerusalem's troubled. I, I get why Herod would be troubled. What I don't understand is why Jerusalem would be troubled. You'd think this is what we've always wanted. We've been waiting for our king. Now, could it have been that they were troubled because they feared the violence of Herod? I mean, Herod was a famously bloodthirsty king. Herod killed like every person uh, in his family that could have had claim on his throne. He killed a couple of his sons, killed a couple of his wives. He, I mean, the way this chapter of Scripture ends, it ends with the slaughter of the innocents. Every infant under two in, in the area of Bethlehem being slaughtered. So Herod is famously bloodthirsty. Could it have been that Jerusalem is troubled because they they know how Herod is going to react to this? Or could it have also been fear of Rome's reprisal? Because remember, Herod is just an underling. Herod isn't even the total final sovereign monarch of Israel. He's under the thumb of Rome. So maybe they feared Rome's reprisal. There have been several rebellions at this point that have already been put down. We're not told why Jerusalem was troubled. But we know exactly why Herod was troubled and it's because he sees and recognizes the significance of what this means. Look at what he says when he gathers the chief priests and the scribes. He gathers the chief priests and the scribes together in this conniving plot that he makes. But look what he says, look what he, the question that he asks them. He uses a word here that shows that he knows exactly what time it is. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. That, that, word, for, that word for Jesus hasn't been used in this text up until that point. Now, we don't know all of what the Magi were saying, but Herod at least gets the message. This is not just any king that uh, they are coming to look at. This is not just an earthly person uh, that could have a claim on my throne that these uh, on my throne that these other uh, people from other nations are coming to do homage to. This is not just a random son of David with a right to the throne. Herod recognizes because Herod is a convert to Judaism, and he has all the chief priests and the scribes with him there to tell him. This is the divine son of David 
promised by the prophets. Not just man, but God and man. Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity and Prince of Peace. Or maybe Herod was thinking of Psalm chapter 2 where the wicked rulers of the nations are gathered against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed, his Mashiach in Hebrew. The same exact word that Herod uses here for, for the person of Christ. Herod recognizes that this is the one who was promised, who would come to smash every rival throne. And not only that, but then the religious leaders confirm this fear in Herod. They quote Micah chapter 5. Verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the, land of Eph- in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, one who is to shepherd my people, Israel. And what's interesting is if you, if you go back and you look at that passage, excuse me, in Micah, that prophecy doesn't stop there. But it it speaks of this ruler who will come forth to shepherd the people of Israel. And it says his goings forth are from of old, from ancient days. I think that Herod at least gets the inkling that the claim here is that this one who was born in Bethlehem is no mere man. He's God in the flesh. And that leads to what I call the insanity of Herod, is he recognizes this claim. He recognizes, he says, I mean, he says it to the Magi when he, when he gathers them together. He recognizes the claim that this one who was born in Bethlehem is divine. He says to them, uh, you go find him, and after you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He uses the word worship there. He knows that they're claiming that this is God. And he still says, let's kill him. That's the depravity of the human heart. That's the depravity of my heart outside of Christ. So he recognizes the claim of divinity. Three times in this passage, actually, it talks about worship being offered to Jesus. The Magi say we're here to worship him. Herod says, you go find him so I can worship him. And then in the last part of uh, this, this text, in verse 11, they show up and they find Jesus and they worship him. And what I want us to understand is that Herod's opposition to Christ here, the, the insanity of his rebellion, thinking this is the one that they're claiming is God in the flesh And I should snuff him out. I should kill him. What I want us to see is that insanity is common, not spectacular. It would be wrong to read this text and ask, how in the world could Herod do this? How in the world could Herod's heart be so hard that all of the promises of God are being fulfilled right before his very eyes? God has come in the flesh, born of a virgin, in fulfillment of prophecy, And he still says, let's kill him so my throne can be established. What I want us to understand this morning is that that is not spectacular evil. That is common evil. That is the evil that is common to every single one of us outside of Jesus Christ. 
Think about Herod's motives here. I alluded to this earlier. Throughout his life, Herod tried to establish himself to be the great to be the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. He so enriched his own status as the ruler of Israel that he was the, the only one of the rulers to be crowned king by the emperor, and he accomplished massive feats of uh, construction, just like the temple that was around in Jesus' day. The temple that the disciples, as they were going out of Jerusalem uh, up to the Mount of Olives, and they point to, they point to the temple and they say, do you, see these, like, do you see the glory of this building? Do you see the magnitude of these stones? Do you see the riches that God has bestowed on his people, Israel? Tell us, when will these things be? And when will be your coming in the end of the age? That building was built by Herod. Herod had established himself as a glorious ruler. He was ruthless, rich, and respected. He was after his own glory. And all of this vain glory so consumes his heart that he can't see that this baby born in Bethlehem is worth more than all of the kingdoms of the world put together. He can't see that as he's trying to establish his own glory, as he's trying to establish his own kingdom, he can't see the value of what of the person that was born in Bethlehem. The center of human history, the fulfillment of all prophecy, the one who would come to save his people from their sins. God in the flesh, the creator of all things, upholding all things by the word of his power. And he says, I'm going to establish my glory rather than his. But what I want us to see is that that is all of our sin, not just Herod's. That is your sin this morning. That is what all sin is. It's my honor, not God's. It's my riches, not God's. It's my pleasure, not God's. Herod's sin is common to every one of us, not spectacular. All sin is idolatry. And this is what Jesus came to make war against. This is why, at the end of the account, Herod is dead and in the ground at the end of this chapter, and Jesus remains. And even as the kingdoms, the chief priests that we see featured here in this very account... Even at the end of this gospel, when they get together and they say, let's kill him, even they are just doing what God's uh, foreordained plan required. They crucify him as he's bearing the sins of his people. And they don't realize that the very act of their rebellion against God is the means by which this man, this one born in Bethlehem, was accomplishing the salvation of his people and crushing his enemies. How futile is our rebellion? So we shouldn't read this saying, I can't believe Herod would do this. Excuse me. Not only does this text show us that the conflict of, uh, show us the conflict of Jesus against every rival throne like Herod's, It shows us the war that Jesus came to wage against every one of our idols. And this is the the juxtaposition uh, 
between Herod's plot to keep his glory as opposed to the Magi who bring in the glory of the nations to cast them at the feet of Jesus. They bring in the riches of the Gentiles to throw them at the feet of Jesus, saying, Jesus, King of the Jews, you are worthy of the treasures of the nations. You're worthy not only of the treasures of the nations, but you're worthy of our worship. Do you see how those two things are being juxtaposed in this text? Herod's hanging on to his glory. The Magi are casting their glory at the feet of the incarnate Son of God. So not only is there there conflict here between Christ and Herod, there's there's a a clear conflict or a clear uh, comparison between the Magi and the grace of God that has brought the Magi into the fold and brought them to faith in Christ and those whom he has allowed to remain hard in their hearts and seeking their own glory like Herod. So let's look at the last point here, the worship of the Magi. Just notice the difference here, to repeat. The Magi also have immense wealth. You know, this, this, the things that they bring to Jesus here in the last couple of verses, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were not common items. These were not common household things. These are things that would adorn the palaces of kings. The Magi have wealth. The Magi have status. The Magi might even have a similar power that Herod has where they come from. Do you, do you recognize that? Because, like, if you, if you go back in history, Magi were incredibly powerful people. You know when, uh, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and uh, raised, you know, raised the temple, uh, demolished Israel, and carried off Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he put them in his court, and he started training them in the ways of the Chaldeans? You remember that? That was the court of the Magi. Those people that they were training with, whom they were learning from, uh, who were you know, eating from the king's table, those were magi. These were immensely wealthy people. And by the time you get to the end of Daniel, Daniel has been so exalted in the kingdom that he has, he has a lot of say. So the magi have wealth. The magi probably have status. And they have some kind of power where they come from. But they came to cast it all at the feet of Jesus. And what's even more amazing is that Magi were pagan sorcerers. These are people who worshipped false gods. So not only do we see the conflict of the gospel, but we see the grace of the gospel that the conflict brings about. Jesus is the one who conquers not only uh, the idols of the rebellious, but he's the one that conquers all of his people's sins and beckons them to come in and cast their riches at his feet. The Magi were pagans, but what's pictured here is their conversion. The first fruits of the Gentiles coming in. They've spent their whole lives probably worshiping gods, 
associated with the stars. And now Yahweh speaks to them and sends a star to lead them to God in the flesh. And then they fall down and they worship. You know, it's interesting comparing 1 Kings chapter 10 with this text is that Sheba brings in massive amounts of wealth into Jerusalem. She brings him spices. She brings him jewels. She brings him gold. And she's singing his praises. She's talking about how wise Solomon is. She's talking about how glorious Solomon's kingdom is. She's saying, look at your servants. Look at the state of your servants. Look at the state of your house. Look at all your land. Look at the prosperity. And you think she's singing Solomon's praises and then she ends up worshiping Yahweh for it. She says, blessed be Yahweh who made you king of Israel. The Magi come and they worship Jesus. The Magi come and they don't just worship Yahweh as separated from Jesus. They fall down with their faces in the dust and they worship the incarnate Son of God. Something greater than Solomon is here. One is here who is worthy, not just of the honor of the earth's kings, but of the worship of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's exactly what you see in the book of Revelation. You see, as this kingdom that he came to purchase here, starting in the virgin birth, and as you see the Gentiles flowing to him from every nation, casting their riches at his feet, you see that accomplished and finished and consummated in the book of Revelation. And what do you see? You see every tribe, every tongue, every people gathered around the throne of the slain and risen lamb, worshiping him for all eternity. Jesus is, is worthy of the worship of the nations and he's worthy of your worship this morning. I don't know where each of you individually is at with the Lord. But one thing I do know, this one who was born in Bethlehem is worthy of your worship. When you come to, when you come to Christ, you don't just come to one who you know, makes you think of peace and love and safety and happiness. You don't just come to one who makes us sing during the Christmas season about peace on earth and goodwill toward men. You come to the conqueror of the earth's kingdoms and you come to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So if, you're not, if you haven't known that Jesus this morning, close with him today. If you haven't trusted in that Jesus, the Jesus that is the very real, very alive King of kings and Lord of lords, do what the Magi did. Come to him. Throw everything that is yours at his feet because he's worthy of it. And he promises you eternal life. He promises you rest because not only did he come to conquer the earth's kingdoms, he came to conquer your sins through his cross and through his resurrection. Don't worship a Jesus that you've made as an idol for yourself. That's very, very possible. And people do it all over the place all the time. They say they're worshiping Jesus. They say they've come to Jesus. And their life doesn't show it because really they've fashioned a Jesus as their own idol. What did the the children of Israel do 
when they were coming out of the land of Egypt. Moses goes up on the mountain, and they tell, they tell Aaron, hey, make us, make us a calf. Make us a calf to bow down and worship. And then Aaron makes them this idol, this, this thing that is offensive in the sight of the living God. And then what does Aaron say to them? He said, behold your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, he was saying, behold, this is Yahweh. And we do the same thing with Jesus all the time. We don't worship the Jesus who is King of kings and Lord of lords. So often we worship a Jesus who is much, much more comfortable for us to worship. One who doesn't mind us pursuing our own glory like Herod was. One who doesn't mind us pursuing our pleasure like Herod was. One who doesn't mind us doing with our time what we want to do with our time like Herod does. Come to the true Christ today. Worship the true Christ today. That's the call of this text. He's worthy of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is worthy and we thank you that those that because we're trusting in him and him alone for our salvation, we have free access to your throne. We have peace, we have joy, we have incomparable rest in your presence. Lord, we recognize that Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, the King of every nation, is worthy of everything. That's what we come here to proclaim today. That's what we'll go out from here proclaiming as we leave this place. Pray these things in his name. Amen.